You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, uh, page 56 and 57, Exodus 14. Uh, the, those are the pages if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Anthony mentioned under the seat. And as I mentioned last week, uh, in these chapters, in Exodus 11 through 15, we are in the very heart of the Old Testament. This morning, we're going to see the Israelites crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. And no single event is more written about or sung about in the Bible than this. Until the birth of Jesus, which is many centuries later, until the birth of Jesus, crossing the Red Sea is the most celebrated occurrence in the history of the people of God. And along with the Passover, which we got to look at last week, this is how the Exodus happens. Uh, This is the specific way that God brings his people out of Egypt, brings them out of their slavery. They waited 430 years. It's a long time. It's hard for us to even begin to wrap our mind around that period of time. They waited 430 years, and then one day their waiting was over, and they were free. So as I read this for us in just a moment, remember that these words are not just recounting true historical events. They are most certainly doing that. But they are also setting the stage for a greater exodus. They are also setting the stage for a freedom from a different kind of slavery, which Jesus Christ would accomplish centuries later. So let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll dive in. Lord God, we ask now in this moment by the power of your Spirit, that you would help us to know your ways, that you would teach us your paths, that you would lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation, and it's for you that we wait all day long. We pray this through Jesus, our Savior and our God. Amen. Amen. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Exodus 14, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let, the, let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped by the sea, by Pi-Haharoth, in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and all his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. 
You will bring them out and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we contemplate the exodus and the greater exodus of Jesus this morning, three things for us to to walk through. We'll talk about salvation, we'll talk about the sea, and then we'll talk about a song. Salvation, the sea, and a song. So first, let's talk about salvation. Last week, when we looked at the Passover, we saw how the Passover sets a paradigm for our own salvation. Uh, Specifically, it helps us to understand the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Well, crossing the Red Sea also sets a paradigm for our salvation. It helps us understand what we're saved from, who saves us, and how we're saved. So what we're saved from. Before the Exodus, remember, the Israelites were in a desperate, hopeless situation. And they were in that situation for a long time. They'd been enslaved by Pharaoh, this this ruthless taskmaster who oppressed and who exploited them for his own ends. In chapter 12, last week, we saw after that night, after the Passover, they are saved from their slavery. They leave Egypt. But in chapter 14, as we read, Pharaoh changes his mind. He regrets having let them go. He, He takes a bunch of the Egyptian army and he chases after them. It's not clear whether his intent is to bring them back to Egypt and enslave them again or to kill them there in their their camp. The Israelites seem to think it's the latter, right? When they see the Egyptian army coming and they fear greatly, they seem to think that they're about to die. All that to say, when they cross the Red Sea, the Israelites are saved from both slavery and death. Slavery and death. And death. They are fully freed from Egypt's power to enslave them, and they are delivered from what would have otherwise been their death. And in the greater exodus of Jesus' salvation, we are saved from the very same things. We are sla- saved from slavery, and we are saved from death. You and I are, not, are enslaved not by Pharaoh, of course, not by Egypt, but by sin. The Apostle Paul writes about this in places like Romans chapter 6. We, we are held captive by an even harsher, even crueler taskmaster than Pharaoh. And we are unable to free ourselves. Likewise, left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead. Sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And so enslaved in our sin, we are likewise dead in our sin. If you and I are ever going to appreciate the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us, we have to first see the hopelessness and the desperation of our condition apart from him. If we are only an inconvenienced people, if we are only people who struggle, if we are only even broken people, then maybe all we need from Jesus is just a little bit of help. Maybe we just need a a hand up from Jesus, just a little bit of an assist. But if our condition is slavery and death, if we are unable to free ourselves, if we are unable to make ourselves alive again, how much more necessary, how much more beautiful is the greater exodus of Jesus' salvation? Infinitely greater, infinitely more. 
like the Israelites on the, red, on the shore of the Red Sea, we are inclined to really quickly forget what our prior condition was. Having just witnessed the plagues and the Passover, look how fast the Israelites complain. Chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. Why'd you make us leave, Moses? Can you imagine a people that were enslaved for four centuries saying, what have you done bringing us out of that slavery? Maybe slavery wasn't that bad. That's what they're saying on the shore of the Red Sea. We can never forget the hopelessness, the horror of our slavery to sin and of our spiritual death, the condemnation of death that comes with it. We can never forget what we are saved from. From this account, we also learn more about who saves us. Who saves us? And we see specifically salvation is God's work and it is God's work alone. In chapter 14, we're, we're not sure how long the Israelites have been gone from Egypt, how long since they left after that Passover night, but it hasn't been very long. And so when God tells them here to backtrack a little bit and to set up their camp in this particular location, from a human standpoint, it's an absolutely terrible strategy. Absolutely terrible. You could not dream up a more vulnerable, trapped, pinned down cul-de-sac of a place to set up camp than this one. And we find out pretty quickly, it is a trap, but not for the Israelites. It's a trap for Pharaoh, for Egypt. It's setting the stage for God to accomplish salvation in a way that will bring him glory and renown. In verses four and five of chapter 14, and then repeated in verses 17 and 18, God says that he is going to get glory for what he will do in this moment, that, that people will attribute all of the credit, all of the power to him. The Egyptians are going to know that he is the Lord. And eventually, not only the Egyptians, but really people from all of the nations of the earth are going to know God is the one who brought his people out of Egypt and brought them across the sea on dry ground. One of my absolute favorite texts in the whole Bible, but especially in the book of Exodus, is Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. It says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Men and women, does God need our help to save us? That's not rhetorical. We're going to do this together. Does God need our help to save us? No. Do we contribute anything to accomplishing our salvation? No. What is our role? Our role is to shut our mouths and watch. That's our role. That's our role. The same is true in the greater Exodus. We are incapable of doing anything to save ourselves. And so God does it all for us. He does it all for us. Jesus entered into this world and he lived the life, the perfect life that we were incapable of living. And he died a substitutionary death that we should have died, but he did it in our place. And then he was raised up from the dead. This is the salvation that the Lord has worked for us. That is our God fighting for us. All we had to do was the only thing we could do in the first place was to close our mouths and watch. So we're seeing in this account more about what we're saved from and about who saves us. We also get to see something of how we are saved, how we are saved. And the Exodus teaches us that we are saved supernaturally through a mediator, supernaturally through a mediator. This is a supernatural miracle. 
in the Exodus. This is a supernatural miracle. God suspended the usual order of his creation. He divided the waters in two and he dried up the ground in between so that the Israelites could walk through the sea, through an ocean on dry ground. Over the centuries, there have been a lot of different efforts to try to explain away the miracle of this. Like maybe the Israelites just found a really shallow spot and crossed over there. Maybe it was more of a marshland than the sea. But if that's the case, if that's the the path you want to kind of go with it, you would also be forced to explain how an army of Egyptians drowned in shallow water. Right? And not that, hopefully not that you've tried, not that I've tried, but I'd imagine it's difficult to drown an army of grown men in like six inches of water. It's going to be a hard thing to do. This is a supernatural act of God. It's a supernatural act of God. In this moment and in all of the future accounts of what happened here, God's people attribute this to a direct intervention of God that is unexplainable by any other kind of natural phenomenon. So it's a supernatural salvation and it's accomplished through a mediator. In the Exodus, Moses, maybe you've been noticing this over these weeks, Moses is sometimes identified very closely with the people and other times very closely identified with God. So here, when when the Israelites are threatened, they cry out to God and they complain. And Moses in that moment is not complaining. He's the recipient of their complaints. He's the complaint department. And yet, God says right after that, to Moses, even though he wasn't the one complaining, he says, to Moses, Moses, why are you crying to me? He's identified with the people. He's their representative. Then very, moments just after that, moments later, Moses becomes the one who is lifting up his staff and stretching out his hands over the sea. He becomes the human instrument that, that brings God's supernatural salvation. A mediator is one who stands between God and the people. Someone who can be identified, at least in some ways, with both. And therefore is given a unique role to play in how God accomplishes salvation. And Moses, as a mediator in this moment, points forward to the day more than a millennium later when God accomplishes our salvation through the mediator, Jesus Christ. See, fully human, Jesus can identify with the people. He can identify with us. He is tempted as we are. He gets tired. He is weak like we get tired, like we are weak. But fully God, he alone can walk through the temptations and the trials and the wounds of this world and do that without sin. He's identified with God. Jesus is the ultimate mediator who when raised up from the dead is the instrument that brings God's supernatural salvation to us. All of that to say, let this crossing of the Red Sea help you marvel at the miracle of your own salvation. Let this account help you marvel at the miracle of your own salvation. If you're like me, you'll sometimes find yourself thinking, why can't I witness powerful miracles from God like this? Like, why can't God speak to me or speak to you through a burning bush? Or why can't God display his incredible power over other nations or over his enemies with things like the plagues like he did in Egypt? Like, if we could witness those things, faith feels like it'd be a lot easier. And because of that, some of us want to read Exodus and read this account that way. We want to read it as a template for how we should respond when we're in a tight spot, when we're pinned down. We want to read it as a promise of how God will miraculously open a way for us when our circumstances are hard, when our circumstances feel impossible, that God will bring us through our proverbial sea on proverbial dry ground. What I want you to hear this morning, men and women, is that he already has. 
He already has. This is not a story about what you and I should do in hard times. It's a story about how God has supernaturally made a way. You and I are not waiting for a miracle from God. We have experienced that miracle in Jesus. The fact that Jesus became the mediator to make enslaved people free and dead people alive again, and all we had to do was be silent. That's the miracle. Your life, your salvation is the miracle. The beauty of the Exodus is not how we apply it to our lives. It's how God has already applied it. It's how God has already applied it. It's about what God has already done for us in Jesus. We still face, as you well know, really hard things in life. Really impossible circumstances. I don't want to minimize a single one of those things or that God is present with us in that. But when we zoom out, friends, when we zoom out, our story ultimately is not that we are pinned down somewhere awaiting miraculous deliverance. Our story is that miraculous deliverance has already come in Jesus Christ. So perceive the miracle that your salvation truly is. Rejoice in it. Be grateful for it. This, Exodus 14 and 15, this is an incredible moment for the Israelites. But there's a reason our salvation is called the greater Exodus. It's that much more incredible than than even this. It was an extra long first point today. I snuck like four points into it. So we're going to move a little bit faster through the next two. Second, let's talk about the sea the sea. In the Bible, water is, on the one hand, a symbol of chaos and judgment. And it is, on the other hand, a symbol of cleansing and new life. And we see both of those things on display here at the Red Sea. This is a sobering thought, but at the end of this account, every single person who was there at the Red Sea that day is either dead or delivered. Every single one. Like the flood which judged the sin of humanity in Noah's days, the Red Sea is a place of judgment for the Egyptians. But that very same water, that very same body of water for the Israelites is a place of freedom and new life. And notice that for the Israelites, their deliverance comes through the waters, not around them, but through them. They are brought through the waters of judgment and they move from death to life. And so this event, the crossing of the Red Sea, really helps you and I understand our baptism as Christians. The Apostle Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, our ancestors, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, the Red Sea is, in a way, the Israelites' baptism. In a way, it's their baptism. It's a foretaste of what would someday become the baptism that Jesus would call all of his followers to receive. We say this periodically at Liberty Church, but the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are the gospel made visible. The gospel, the good news of Jesus made visible. What we're seeing in these chapters in this heart of the Old Testament is how the sacraments were present in seed form, in shadow form, all the way back in the Exodus. The Lord's Supper was present in shadow form in the Passover. Baptism was present in shadow form in this crossing of the Red Sea. See, water should be for you and I a picture of our judgment, but in Jesus, water has become a picture of our cleansing. Because Jesus has taken our judgment upon himself, we get to come through the water. We get to be people who move from death to life. 
So a couple implications or a couple applications even in light of, of this. First, if you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, you should be baptized. You should be baptized. Not only is it commanded by Jesus, that's an important point. Not only is it a, is it a deeply meaningful sign which, which unites us with God's people across time and across geography, but it's a way that we get to experience being united with Jesus in his saving work. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter six, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, he's talking to Christians in Rome when he writes this, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too may walk in newness of life. If spiritually you have passed from death to life by trusting in the work of Jesus, Baptism is the way to enact that visibly. It's the way to proclaim that both for your sake and also for the sake of other people that they might see and consider and and even believe. And so if you've never been baptized, be baptized, be baptized. For those of you who have been baptized, cling to the benefits of your baptism. Cling to the benefits of your baptism. It was said of the reformer Martin Luther, that in times of immense suffering and immense struggle in his life, of which there were many, in dark nights of the soul for Martin Luther, when he felt attacked and lied to and tempted by Satan, he could be heard in the middle of the night in his room crying out, I am baptized. I am baptized. In other words, Martin Luther was saying, I've already been delivered. Jesus has already brought me through the waters of judgment. Whenever my heart, whenever my conscience condemns me, God is greater than my heart. And there is therefore, as Paul writes in Romans 8, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. I think that that's why prior to the birth of Jesus, the Red Sea is the most repeated celebrated event in the history of God's people. It's their version centuries earlier of Martin Luther crying out in the middle of the night, I am baptized. See, when Israel says over and over again through their history, the Red Sea could have been our place of judgment and death, but it wasn't. It was our place of deliverance. It was where we went from death to life. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've been baptized, that's true of you. That's true of you. You've experienced your own exodus and you are now on the other side of the waters of judgment. United with Jesus in his death and resurrection, Think about this glorious thought. All of your condemnation and judgment is behind you. All of your condemnation and judgment is behind you. So like the Israelites in the Red Sea, remember your baptism. Cling to the benefits of your baptism because of what it depicts, because of what it enacts. Make it the most celebrated event of your life. The one you cling to in the dark nights of your soul. What should have been your death has become your deliverance. Thanks be to God. So we've talked about salvation. We've talked about the sea. Third and finally, let's talk about a song. Let's talk about a song. Exodus 15 is the first recorded song in the Bible. There are many songs in the Bible. This is the the first one recorded. And we don't have time for a deep dive this morning, but as I read it a while ago, hopefully you heard it's both a song about God and it's a song to God. So those first five verses, it's about what God has done. But then from verse six on, it is directed to God personally. It's thanking and praising him directly. And it's a song 
about how incomparable God is. It's about his power and his holiness and his majesty and his steadfast love. It's about how he is the warrior God who fights for and achieves victory for his people. And he does it for his own glory and he does it for their good. Here's what I want you to see this morning. Saved people are singing people. Saved people are singing people. Singing is is what God's people do in response to the salvation that he has worked for us. One of our our rhythms of grace at Liberty Church is gathered worship. We're doing it right now. Uh, Every week we get to gather together in this place. We get to worship our God together. And one of the things that we do, as you know, when we gather is sing, which can feel awkward, which can feel awkward. Singing is not something people do a whole lot together in our society in the 21st century West. It's something that in generations gone by, people used to do a lot more in society. And we've lost a lot of that. But here's what I'd say to you this morning. If you're a sports fan, and especially if you're a Philly sports fan, you should get this. You should get this. When the Phillies win like they did yesterday, right? And you sing, dancing on my own, right? Or when the Eagles score a touchdown in a stadium full of thousands and thousands of people sing, fly, Eagles, fly, and revert to like elementary school students who have to spell the word eagle. (laughs) When that happens... That's because there is something hardwired into our humanity which is chomping at the bit to sing in response to victory. That's what that is. It's to find some way to express a deep and overwhelming sense of the joy and the goodness of a moment like that. There's nothing wrong with fly, eagles, fly. Right? right? All the Philadelphia sports fans said amen. Right? That's the... I would argue there's actually something essentially human about that. Essentially good about that. There's a common grace to be found in that. But, but it would be a tragedy if we found ourselves singing more enthusiastically or expressively about a sports team than about the warrior savior God who brings his people from death to life. That would be a tragedy. Saved people are singing people. And that starts here in Exodus 15 on the eastern side of the Red Sea. The people lift their voices together. They proclaim the greatness of the Lord. And so church, how much more on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should we be a singing people? And you might think, I I don't like the sound of my voice. I'm right there with you. You might prefer a different music style. You might think, you know what? I like psalms. I like hymns. I like spiritual songs. All three of which, by the way, are prescribed for us to sing. But you might go, I only like that kind. I wish we only sang that kind. That's fine if you have a preference. But the only reason that you'll stop singing, the only reason that you'll be reserved in singing is if you miss the point of singing altogether, which is to join your voices with other delivered people and to exalt the God who saves. In Psalm 107, the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. But I think in light of Exodus 15, in light of the rest of scripture, we should rightly also say, let the redeemed of the Lord sing so. Let the redeemed of the Lord sing so. Saved people are singing people. And this, of course, is something that will continue on throughout eternity. Revelation 15, just a few chapters from the very end of the Bible. It's a glimpse of the consummation of history. And the people of God in Revelation 15 are standing on the shores of a different sea. It's called the Sea of Glass. And on that shore, they sing a song that is called, not coincidentally, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Just a second, I'm going to close with the words from that song. But just to encourage you, when we sang, oh, praise the name together, like that was a little bit of a foretaste of heaven for me, sitting up here. 
Like I had the image of just being on the shores of a sea with you, like not just with a, a nameless, faceless crowd, but with you. Like how incredible is that thought that we get to sing our salvation together for all time. And this song of Exodus 15 anticipates the song of Revelation 15. Just like this Exodus anticipates the greater Exodus. Just like this salvation at the Red Sea anticipates the greater salvation of Jesus. Just like passing through these waters anticipates passing through the greater waters of our baptism. The song of Moses anticipates the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. This singing anticipates the singing that we will get to do forever when Jesus completes the work he has begun and makes all things new. So church, marvel, marvel at the miracle of your salvation. Cling to all the benefits of your baptism. Make it the most celebrated event in your life and then sing the song of your salvation. Revelation 15, verses three and four. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, you have worked an an incredible salvation for us in Jesus. You have brought us through the waters of judgment from death to life. I pray we would marvel together at the miracle that our salvation is. I pray we would cling to our baptism and see that all of the condemnation of death and judgment is behind us. And I pray we'd sing our salvation together. I pray we'd keep singing our salvation together all the times that we gather together and all the way into the day of eternity. And so now as we come to this table and we remember again the cost of that salvation, help us to come with a sobriety, remembering what we've been saved from, but also rejoicing that you have indeed saved us from it. We pray that all Jesus in your matchless, incomparable name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.